Today I am doing something I haven't done since 2017, and that is brewing a beer specifically for and inspired by Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios Orlando, and we're going to talk about that right now. Welcome to Big Monster Brewing, I am Matt, and today I am making a beer specifically to enjoy during Halloween Horror Nights this season for the first time since 2017. So first, if you don't know what Halloween Horror Nights is, it's an annual event here at Universal Orlando Theme Parks in Orlando, Florida, and it's completely transforms the park into a haunted attraction with 10 haunted houses, five scare zone shows, specialty food, drinks, and just an overwhelming and completely immersive Halloween atmosphere that is absolutely second to none for me. I love the event. I have been going since 1999, and one of our longest-running and most popular podcasts on neozaz.com is dedicated to this event. It's called the Catacombs of Halloween Horror Nights podcast. This is something I used to do every year, at least when I started brewing, obviously. I couldn't do it before that, but I would pick a piece of the event, a house, a theme, a character, or something from that year's event, and brew a beer inspired by it. And the last one I did was in 2017. It was based after the Haunted House Scarecrow the Reaping. And it's been so long since I made it, I'm not entirely sure what its name was. I think Harvest was in the name, but I, I don't even know if that's right. It's been so long. Now, this is the last time I made a beer inspired by the current year's event, but it's not the last time I made a beer inspired by Halloween Horror Nights. In 2020, the event was canceled. So I made four beers inspired by Halloween Horror Nights and passed them out to my Horror Nights friends so we could kind of have a social distance Halloween Horror Nights party that year. That was one of the many things that the community came together and did to keep us from getting too down during what would have been the run of that event that year. But as far as making one for and inspired by the event as it's happening, that's the first time I've done this in a while. The inspiration for this beer is the theme of this year's event. And that is Dr. Oddfellow and his traveling show. Without getting too deep into a rabbit hole with this, Dr. Oddfellow is a character from Halloween Horror Nights lore that we've known about for, I want to say decades. I think decades is the right word to say, but they've never built an event around him until this year. Now, if you really want to know more on that, check out our Halloween Horror Nights series, The Catacombs of Halloween Horror Nights. That's what that series is about, and that will give you a lot more a lot more detail than I should probably include in this episode. For the beer, I'm drawing on the name itself, Dr. Oddfellow. I want to make something unusual. Now, here's the thing about doing that. Odd is easy. Take a beer style and put something you never expect in that beer. Basil leaf pilsner, a sausage pale ale, Swedish fish infused stout, or load a sour with 18 different purees, ice cream mix, and cheesecake batter. That's easy to be odd. That's also not the beer that if you're going to the event, you're going to want to drink repeatedly that night and throughout the entire season. That is the kind of beer you'll have one try and probably never touch again. So there's another goal I set for myself when I make these beers. I want to make a style of beer that I would drink nearly every time I go to the event if it was there. In fact, Halloween Horror Nights used to have custom-brewed beers, or at the very least, maybe they were vanity-labeled beers, but they had something with the name and a 
graphic and theme for the event, but they haven't done that in, in I don't even know how many years at this point. So for this, I try to envision if they still did that, what beer would make sense and how would it tie into the name and theme I am trying to use as inspiration. Now I'm saying all this and I want to point out, I have absolutely no delusion that these beers will ever be sold at the event and nor could they be because I couldn't possibly make enough for an event like this and it would be illegal. So I'm not doing this to try to get the beer there. I am literally doing it as a what if scenario. Just want to make that clear that I am not that out of my mind when I do these. So for the odd factor, I'm going to go with a relatively new style that's new in the grand scheme of beer history. It's been around for a couple years, but it's not really been entirely embraced by the beer community yet. And what I'm talking about is a cold IPA. It's something that Wayfinder Beer in Portland, Oregon introduced in 2018. And it's a hop forward, robust lager. They typically used a similar grain bill as a lager, but scaled it up to reach a higher ABV range that far at least higher than most lagers would fall and then load in the addition of hops, whirlpool hops and dry hops that you would typically expect with an IPA. This style is actually in some circles in a vicious debate in the beer community generally. And I hate to be this general, but really older brewers hate that name. And by older, I mean, older than me, and I'm not young. I'd like to think at this point, the uh, majority of us in the beer community either accepted or just don't care because we like the beer regardless of what you call it. I personally love it. I think it's the best of both worlds to me. When it's a clean, crisp, grain-rich lager with a ton of hops, there's really nothing like it, which is why it's got its own name. But is that alone enough to be inspired by Dr. Oddfellow? So for this particular cold IPA, I'm going to ramp up the odd and I'm going to use a very specific yeast to ferment this beer. I am using Omega Yeast Labs Lunar Crush Yeast. This is one of their GMO thialized yeast strains and it's specifically a GMO thialized lager strain. And from all accounts so far, I will say Halloween Hard Nights actually has two weeks to start at the time of recording this. Genetically modified organisms is going to be a pretty strong theme, at least in some of this event. Now, more on the thialized yeast strain. These thialized yeasts have the ability to biotransform thial precursors in both malts and hops. And in doing this, it adds a huge amount of tropical fruit character to this beer. What I'm hoping this does is add another layer of complexity to what's already an interesting combination in this style of the lager and IPA that is a cold IPA. If I do this right, this will be both a hop forward yet crisp, refreshing beer with a unique fruitiness that could be absolutely perfect for the ridiculous heat and humidity we'll be experiencing during Halloween Horror Nights in Florida this year. To add one more odd factor, I'm doing something odd in the brewing process, or at least normally is odd, and I'm adding a pretty significant amount of hops to the mash. If you're new to brewing, hops, and generally speaking, hops are added well after the mash, mostly during the boil and sometimes during fermentation, particularly with an IPA. I have made IPAs where no hops actually touch the boiling wort. It's called wort. That's the boiling liquid part of, of the beer brewing process. I drop the temperature below boiling, then start to stir it and add hops in some of my recipes. So 
that's as far as from the mash process, which is how you start making beer as you can get. So I'm putting, and we'll get to the recipe when I weigh everything out. I am putting in a significant amount of hops in with the grains and the mash, which is not usual. Specifically, I'm going to be adding Cascade hops because Cascade hops are one of the hops that contain a large amount of these thiol precursors and adding them to the mash process is going to give a very healthy dose of those precursors in the wort for the yeast to work with when we get to fermentation. I'm also doing something a little odd for me, not odd in the process, but usually during competition season, I'm making one and two and a half gallon batches. This will be the first five gallon batch I have made in a very long time. I don't want to say this year because I can't remember in the first couple months if I made a five gallon for a festival or something or just to have. But I can tell you once that first award ceremony started this year in Florida for Florida competition season, I've not made a five gallon batch till now. So it's been a while. So hopefully all of my gear is working the way I, re- or better said, hopefully I remember how to work my gear because the gear hasn't done anything except get a little dust. My brain has got a lot more dust. So we'll see what happens when I get that going. So I'm making five gallons because I'm going to can probably about two cases worth. I'm hoping. I'm hoping to get around 50 cans. That's two cans more than two flats or two cases of beer. And I have labels already designed and printed, and I'm going to share this beer with my Halloween Horror Nights friends this season. And maybe if I can coordinate with some of them with their schedules while this is the events going on and we're enjoying the beer, maybe I can put out a special episode for Catacombs of Halloween Horror Nights about this beer and a roundtable review, other than just my review at the tasting at the end of this. But that is a lot of cart to put before some horses, so let's get to work and get to those brew day recordings. I'm at the first point of starting to get this cold IPA brewed, and that's to make a yeast starter. I'm going to make a really big yeast starter, usually for a five-gallon batch of some kind of, any kind of ale, unless it's a really big uh, ale uh, or a big ABV target. uh, You make about a liter to 1,200 milliliters of starter for that. For a lager, I make at least 1,500 milliliters, liter and a half. For this one, I'm going to make two liters. And one is because I'm, well, it's already bigger in size because it's a lager. I explained that. The other reason is that this yeast is a little older than I'd like it to be. I bought it a while ago. I don't know the date, but to give you a time frame, I bought it because I intended to make a cold IPA before competition seasons. And if you've been listening to this show, you've heard me talk about that. In fact, it's the show's back from a break from getting well deep into competition season. So it's a little older than I'd like it to be. So I think I need a little more uh, of a sizable starter to get the amount of yeast cells up to count that I need to get this lager properly fermented. So that's why I'm using the uh, big yeast starter. Now, the slight issue I have with that, it's not too terribly big. It's actually a bigger issue before I started recording, and I'll tell you why in a second. I, I, I have the biggest Erlenmeyer flask I have for yeast starter is two liters. So I'm not going to fill this thing to the top, add the yeast, and let the starter go because it, it ferments like a beer it's a very basic beer it's it's a hopless beer so it's going to have a crowd and it's going to the the overall volume is going to grow i don't know if you can actually physically see it grow but it's going to because more yeast cells are going to multiply 
and then of course it and and, and turn die off and so take up some more volume. So I can't fill this thing to the top, but the yeast didn't do that. So I have my two liter. I also have a one liter. I have a, I have actually <laughs> a big set of them for the various different sizes I use. But the one liter is the important one. So I'm going to make 1500 in one Erlenmeyer flask, the, the two liter, obviously. And I'm going to do 500 in the one liter Erlenmeyer flask. Now this was an issue about five minutes ago because I could not for the life of me find my one liter Erlenmeyer flask anywhere. It's I looked everywhere it would be, and it's not a thing that you necessarily grab to do something else with, so I couldn't imagine it being in any other room. When I came in here to start putting everything together, I literally turned around and looked eye to eye to it, and how I didn't see that all before preparing for this, I don't know how, but I have it now. So I have both Erlenmeyer flasks. I'm going to measure out some water, measure out some dry malt extract, and get these yeast starters going and talk a little bit more talk a little bit more about those as we go along. All right, I got my water ready and my dry malt extract weighed out. I'm gonna do two boils in two different pots because it's just it's too much volume for the pot I usually use it in. It's too little volume for the next big one, next bigger one, I guess you'd say I've had, but I do have a smaller one, which is good for the five. 100 milliliter one. So I'm gonna do one at a time. I'm gonna boil, chill, pitch yeast, and gonna do the second one. I'm gonna do the small one first, and then the second one. So all together, I have 200 grams of dry malt extract, light draw dry malt extract, one cup of 50 grams, another 150 grams. My calculation I've been using for years to great success I don't know, it's, it's not super scientific by any stretch of the imagination. It's one gram per 100 milliliters of water. That's it. And I don't know if that's typical or controversial. I just know I tried it, it works, it has worked ever since, and I don't see any reason to change it. So that's what I'm doing. And when it comes to the yeast, I'm not gonna be real scientific either. It's three quarters of the total amount in one flask, one quarter in the other, so I'm going to attempt to pour in one quarter of the slurry in the 500 milliliter and the rest in the other. I'm sure the ratio is going to be off between the two, but the yeast should still have, it should be plenty of yeast for each and plenty of sugary wort for them to eat and get my numbers up to what I need to be. So not too terribly worried about it. This is homebrewing. If I was making, this is five gallons of making. If I was making 500 barrels, I'd want my numbers a little more specific than what I'm doing, but I'm not too worried about doing what I'm doing at five gallons. So I'm gonna start with this 500, get this heated up and get this uh, that starter going. I am getting these starters going now and the step I'm at is making what I wanna call wart, but it doesn't have any hops, so it's technically not wart. But thinking about it, I think it's called sweet wart technically. It's a word I've been using and for a while. I'm not sure where I got it or if that's technically correct, but I'm gonna call it sweet wart because there's no hops in it, so there's no bittering or any other flavors, so why not? And that's a really simple process. I put it in the water that I measured out into a bowl, got that up to a boil. Once it started boiling, I added the dry malt extract and now I'm stirring occasionally to make sure it doesn't settle and scorch. And I'm gonna boil that for 10 minutes. And it should be doing two things for me essentially. One, it's melting and incorporating that dry malt extract into liquid, which is 
much more difficult than at room temperature, which I've done before. And I can't imagine doing it at cold in cold water, though I'm sure you could. This stuff is so susceptible to water, you get a drop in it, it starts to clump up. And it's been a pretty it's it's been a really challenging ingredient to use in Florida humidity to begin with. Um, I suppose you could do this at room temperature, but you'd be stirring a lot more than you would have to with uh, boiling water like I'm doing now. Boiling it for 10 minutes should sanitize everything, the water and the dry malt extract both, which should probably be okay from their source as is. But this is, like I said, incorporating that into everything into a liquid form and kind of a safety measure by going a few minutes beyond that. Probably takes like a minute, if even that, the better part of a minute to actually get the dry malt extract incorporated. There's additional nine plus minutes is kind of a safety net just to make sure this is clean before I put a package of yeast into it, which is going to be the vital ingredient in creating alcohol. So you kind of want to make sure that environment's good for them because the alcohol is the important part to a lot of people, myself included in many cases. So that's it. Uh, I'm going to do this twice. Uh, when this is done, I'm going to chill it, put it in a Lemire flask and then put the yeast in and then do it all again. I got both these starters done and going. Figured there was no sense in recording the process twice. So they're done. And I ended up doing something uh, a lot more calculated than I it said I would or was expecting to do with the yeast. In the previous recording, I think it was the last one, I said how I had a bunch of different size Erlenmeyer flasks. So I, with that idea, I grabbed my half liter Erlenmeyer flask, sanitized it, and put it on a scale, zeroed out the scale, and then dumped the yeast slurry from the, from the Omega yeast packet itself into that, noted the weight measurement, then poured about a quarter of that amount into the 500 milliliter starter. It's actually a little more, but I mean, we're talking negligibly more <laughs> or more. It's it, the number hardly matters. And then once I confirmed that weight, I put the rest of it, which is three quarters of that slurry into the one and a half liter Erlenmeyer starter and the two liter Erlenmeyer flask of so three quarters of the amount of starter with the three quarters of the amount of yeast. So. Ended up actually finding a way to be a little more calculated in this yeast propagation. Um, I have one yeast starter, or a stir, should say, stir plate is a better way to say it. I have one stir plate, and I have the one and a half liter starter on there now. That should be done within 48 hours, probably less, because Omega yeast goes really quick usually when it's healthy. And as I walk by the other flask, the one liter flask with the half or the 500 milliliter starter in it. I give it a good stir for a couple of seconds each time I walk by it. Uh, when this big one's done within, like I said, 48 hours, I'll take it off, put it in the fridge to cold crash it. Then I'll put the smaller starter on the stir plate overnight. And then that should be enough to get these both up to fully propagated and enough time to be cold crashed so I can decant them. And that'll lead us into brew day. Brew day's in four days. That's, that's actually, that's more than enough time, I think, for us to get done. So... We're just waiting for brew day now, which will probably be in the next recording. It's brew day for the cold IPA, and I've got the big anvil set up. The ten, Well, I guess it's a medium-sized one. There's one bigger now. Has been for a while, but I got the 10.5-gallon anvil set up for this 5-gallon batch. And I'm going to add the water. I need 7.97 gallons of water, so I'm just going to use 8. And if I have to boil, 
an extra two minutes to get rid of that 0.03 gallons. Oh, well, I don't think I'm actually going to be measuring it or even noticing that. But I'm going to put seven gallons actually in the anvil for strike water and leave another gallon for sparging like I do with both anvil systems. And I'm going to get the water. It's all distilled water, so I'm going to add some salts to the water to get it to a specific profile. In this case, I had a choice kind of or decision to make is a better way to say it. Do I go with like kind of a get a nice crispness out of the lager aspect of this or get something that accentuates the hops? I've moved it a lot more towards the like the crispy lager character for the water, but I did increase the gypsum a little bit more than like just a crispy lager water profile would actually uh, be. So altogether, just for the completeness sake of this recipe, I'm putting in six grams of gypsum, four grams of calcium chloride, and two and a half grams of Epsom salt, and that should hopefully lend to a more a little more crispness to the beer as to the malt aspect of this but we shall see i don't know for some i'm trying to combine two the best of both worlds in a water profile may not do anything with all that really strong hop flavor that should come out between the thiols and the dry hop so we shall see and i'm not going to get anything done if i don't get this water going so let me let me load it up turn on the anvil and get this up to strike temperature Got the water loaded. I have the salts ready, but I'm not going to put those in until the water's over 100 degrees because it just integrates so much better after it's 100 degrees and the water's nice and hot. So I'm going to go get the grist together. And this is a very simple grist, yet very unusual, sort of, at least one portion of it is. So first, the simple part, 11 pounds of Pilsner and then two pounds of flaked rice. And that is it. And I'm just going to mill the Pilsner and add the flaked rice as it is. And because of the flaked rice, there's a couple of things, choices I have. I could do some sort of like cereal mash. They usually use that without the rice that's not flaked. You use that with regular rice. I could do a step mash or I could probably mash for about two hours, a better part of two hours, make sure I get full conversion because that's going to convert slower than the, the malts are, the um, everything that comes from the malts. I'm opting for the two hours because I have all day and I'm actually doing something while I'll be mashing. So it kind of works out well for my schedule. And I don't have to worry about missing any mash steps, which is really not difficult to do when you set a timer to remind you. But this way I can just kind of set it, forget it, stir it every once in a while and be done with it. The third category, the strange one, or the third ingredient, I should say, is the hops. And I did mention this in the opening of this. And I'm going to be adding five ounces of Cascade hops in there, which the there's still going to be some acid... Um, well, maybe a little bit of a summarization, but it's going to pull some bitterness out and some flavors. It's really in there to build those style precursors, but the bitterness should carry over, which is going to make me completely skip any bittering addition to this to this beer. And we'll talk about the other additions when we get to the boil, but this is essentially, like, it's, it's twofold. It's for the thiols, and it's also going to reduce our bittering. And just something different and something to go along with the theme of this beer. So I'm going to get all this stuff together and probably be mashing in here very shortly. The water temperature is up to 100 degrees. So I put in my salts now. And one thing I didn't mention about temperature was what I'm aiming for. I'm shooting for 148 degrees to mash in at. And then I'm going to hold that, like I said, for about two hours. I think I got... 
uh, the day planned out pretty well to not make this uh, all-nighter and do a two-hour mash and a two-hour two -hour boil since there is a ton of Pilsner malt and it's North Star Pilsner malt, which I failed to mention before. And the difference between that is it's a little less modified, so it's a little sweeter. It still gives that light color and that crisp profile with everything else is <laughs> comes out right. But without that, the, the I, I'm thinking, I don't know this for sure, but without the additional modifications that a German Pilsner malt would have, it might be a uh, DMS producer. So I'm going to try to avoid any issue with that by boiling for two hours. So it's an extra long brew day, as long as, long as being an extra large brew day from what I usually do. But it's underway. I am once, once I hit 148 and put that in, the grist in, then there's, there's absolutely no turning back at that point. I just weighed out the hops for the mash edition and two thoughts occurred to me. One, I was planning to do a two hour mash. Is it okay for those hops to be in there that long or is it gonna give me too much bitterness? Tried to look it up. I didn't get too much of an answer. So, I, well, I didn't get a direct answer to that because I guess that question hasn't been asked. So what I did do was look at a lot of thialized uh, recipes period, not just for cold IPAs, but for using the thialized yeast. And everything is listed at 60 minutes. I think that's because that's the standard. So I don't think it's gonna take much or make much of a difference if I add them an hour into the two hour mash because they'll still have been in there for an hour. And I think, and, and Beersmith does calculate based on, on the minute mash and I currently have it in at 60 minutes. So I think that'll be okay. I did put in 120 minutes and the IBU did go up a little bit, but I'm not sure that, yeah, I'm not entirely, I'm sure the, the, the program is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. I'm not sure that's what I want to do. So I'm going to put it in for just an hour. So it's going to be an hour mashing without the hops and an hour with. Then I thought about the two hour boil. I was like, well, is that too much time with the initial alpha acids that are coming out in the mash? And I re-looked at my paperwork and I originally wrote this recipe out for 90 minutes knowing I'd be using Pilsner malt. So I think instead of a two hour boil, I'm gonna go back to 90, which is kind of typical anyway for a homebrew sized boil to avoid those DMS precursors, hopefully. So I'm gonna take the chance on that and boil for a little less than I planned. Well, I guess for what I originally planned since I put 90 minutes into the system, but um, for the, but for them, <laughs> different from what I adjusted earlier. Man, mine's going faster than the mouth there. So those are the changes I'm making so far. I don't think I have any other changes. And I'm still just waiting for that temperature to come up before I even get to the point of doing anything I just talked about. I mashed in and I was a little worried because it's such a large grist that it might be a super thick mash, but there's also a lot of water in here. I guess to make up for that 90 minute boil and everything. And I did add some rice holes to kind of even increase that mass, but all in all, it mashed in pretty well. It's a average thickness mash. It's like a runny oatmeal. So that's usually what I like to, it's about as thick as I like to get on the anvil because otherwise I start getting problems. You can work around them, but I'd rather just set it and forget it today. So. Looks good. I'm going to start the timer, and then when we're halfway through, I'm going to come in and put in the uh, Cascade tops, or the, the mash hops, which they are Cascade, so I guess all that was accurate and much longer than it needed to be. 
All right, we're halfway through the mash, and I just put the hops in, the five ounces of Cascade, and they basically disintegrated on impact, or at least on stir. They kind of held together pretty good until I stirred, and then it turned into a green film across the top of the mash. So that's, I kind of, ex I guess I expected that. I'm not quite sure what I expected. So I'm letting it sit for a second, let it soak in, and I'm going to start the circulation back up and let this go for another hour. And then I'm going to check my starting or my pre-boil gravity. I want to see how close this came to fully, oh, what's the word I'm th I can't think of? Fully uh, extracting, converting, fully converting the sugars. I want, that's what the extra time was for, to make sure that rice, flaked rice, gets enough contact time in the heat to convert. So we'll find that out. I've got some room for variance here. I can make up some time in boil. I'd like to not add to the boil to, to keep from over boiling these early edition hops but i can also have some leeway in the percentage i'm looking for i'm looking for seven percent but if i get the six five or if i go over even better but it's not going to kill me if these numbers are a little low so we'll find that out uh and well obviously in an hour i just nearly avoided a huge disaster turned to a little mishap but could have been so much worse when i take the lid off the anvil foundry i hook the hose the pump hose to the side handle to hang there so it doesn't hit the ground and then gravity takes over and all the wort comes out well that doesn't help much when you turn the pump on and it's still hanging there it was it was outside of the foundry and i happened to just notice like at the moment i flipped the on switch i noticed it was hanging there and i flipped it off the propeller went enough to pour out like just a little bit, like maybe a shot glass worth of wort out of there. Not much. And it got on the floor, obviously. Luckily, it's got on a tile floor, so it's easily wiped up. But if I hadn't, if I had turned that and turned around and not happened to look to the side, uh, it, cups of that, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when it's all sugar water and it comes shooting out of that as fast as it does, that's a lot. But luckily, that didn't happen. So hopefully that's my one for the day. And I feel quite lucky that as little of it came out as it did, because that could have been awful. The main mash is done. I am now doing a mash out. I've got it raised up or rising to 168. It's not quite there yet. I'm going to hold there at 10 minutes. And just to get that last bit of conversion, I possibly can have everything. And then I'm going to check the gravity and see how close we are and go on to the boil. Even if we're short, I don't think I'm going to extend the boil past my original plan. Well, my modified plan now, uh, just because of how many, how much hops I put in this mash. I just don't want to kind of overdo that. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know why I have a feeling this is going to be short on, on pre-boil gravity. It's just this, I don't know. It's just a feeling I have. I haven't measured anything. Hopefully I'm wrong. We're going to find out. I got the boil additions ready for this beer as I'm waiting for the temperature to get to, even get to mash out temperature and then hold it 10 minutes. It takes a lot longer at this volume. And it's funny that I have these already. I'm not going to need them for a while. In fact, I don't need the first one and, well, two of them together until 10 minutes left in the boil. And that's going to be 12 ounces of corn sugar. That's going to keep in line with the crisp nature of this, the light body, but... 
higher alcohol than your normal lager. This is going to give that, it's going to give a little snap. It's going to give a little alcohol zing to it, I think, and create some more um, fermentables and, or give it more fermentables to create more alcohol. And I also add yeast nutrients in 10 minutes. Around five minutes, I put the Whirlflock tablet in for the hot side findings. And then I will drop the temperature to 190 degrees and I'll whirlpool 1.35 ounces of cryo centennial hops for a half hour. And then when I'm done that, when I completely turn off the heat and start chilling the beer, I'm going to throw in 1.3 ounces of Cascade at knockout. And that is it until dry hop. Dry hop is going to have uh, one, two, three editions, I believe. I'll turn the page here, make sure there's not a fourth. It's three. And when I get to that, that's going to be at probably about after a week of fermenting. It's going to be, it's a lot compared to these, but not a lot compared to the mash. Oddly enough, but it's going to be 1.6 of mosaic ounces, 1.6 ounces of mosaic, 1.6 ounces of strata, and one, and I'm sorry, 0.65 of the cryo centennial. So basically, the rest of the two ounce bag of centennial. Now, I know I could not get exactly 1.35, I think I have like 1.355, so this is actually technically going to be like 6. Point or 0.645, but I don't think it's going to make that huge bit of a difference when I get to that point. So that is all I got to talk about now. I was going to say left, but I don't have, I got a lot of stuff left to do today, include boiling, adding these additions, and then chilling and getting in a fermenter, and then, of course, cleaning. But really can't do any of that until I get through with this last bit of mash out. Well, I just took a pre boil gravity reading as the last minutes of this mash out are coming to a close. And my target was one, um, yeah, 1.051 or 1051, as I believe I usually say it. And my actual reading was 1061, which means I'm 10 points over, which is not, I don't know. I guess the feeling I had was that I was over. And over is usually fine. Hopefully, even with the boil time and the corn sugar additions, it's not too high for this yeast to completely ferment out. There is a danger of that but i i i will just have to find out now so I, I didn't think too high was going to one happen and two be an issue but that much higher it's hard to tell but these numbers on the foundry have jumped wildly past and under expectations after that initial reading so i'm not panicking yet. i'm not going to panic at all i'll make this work one way or another it just might be a relatively sweet cold IPA if it doesn't fully ferment out. Actually, I do have, you know what's funny? Now that I say this, I, I kind of realized um, I do have a backup plan without having prepared for this. I thought my, I was kind of running out of time for that. Those yeast starters to propagate, they took off really slow, which usually does happen for me with lager yeast. Maybe that's just how lager yeast acts, act in starters in general, and I just don't have enough experience with it. So I sort of panicked and I got two packets of some classic German lager yeast. They're uh, Saf Lager W3470. It's, it's, it's like the, the go-to for ever, basically. And so if this, um, so what I'm trying to say is if this, the yeast I did propagate for this with the, that Lunar Crush yeast does stall out, I've got more lager yeast to pitch to try to get this going if it comes to that it may not so i got a backup plan without having realized i made a backup plan so all right i think we're just about done mash out i'm gonna have to get this malt pipe out of the foundry and start sparging
about a third of the way through sparging and I just thought of something I should do uh, sooner than later. I'm doing it right now. If you hear that, that's me turning up the heating coils to boil temperature and increasing them now to 100% because it's going to take quite a bit of time to get this amount of liquid boiling. So might as well take advantage of the time uh, it's sitting here sparging doing nothing. All right, mash out is done, and here's that familiar sound of the malt pipe draining, which you may have heard before. Now I'm about ready to get the sparge going. I did turn off the burner a little earlier because of my mishap of last brew recording where I had it turned up and overshot my sparge water temperature. So it's at 155. I want to get it to at least over 160 before I sparge. 170 is usually the goal but I'll take 160. And it should be at that right about now. So I'm gonna check, and if it is, I'm gonna start sparging. All right, all the sparge water has been added and it's making its way through the grain bed. I'm gonna let it sit for 15 minutes. I usually let it sit for 10, but after adding those hops, I, the mash started to slow down. It never got stuck completely, but it did take a little bit of stirring directly at the bottom of the grain bed to get the water levels to equal out and i noticed when i pulled this mold pipe out it sounded slower than it normally did so i did a quick stir while it was suspended and it was still full of liquid and once i did that stir it flowed at the rate i expected so i guess maybe the hop the plant matter and the hop may have gum things up a little bit but uh, I think I'll be able to, let me take a look inside. I take the sparge lid off. Oh yeah, 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 it's fine. It's, it's going to drain, but I think it's gonna take a little more time than usual. So 15 minutes should do it. Then I put it in a bucket that's clean and dump what drains out of that post sparging anyway. So I'm fairly confident I'll get more than, not enough liquid. I was gonna say more than enough, but that's not gonna happen. But I'm sure, I'm pretty confident I'll get the liquid I need to get to my five gallons. Just gotta give it a little more time than usual. We're at 60 minutes in the boil time and I don't have anything of course to talk about because there is no additions for another 50 minutes. Although I think I'm gonna put the immersion chiller in at 15 minutes a little early. Uh, but I felt like I needed to record something at 60 because something usually always happens at 60. I can say one great thing about these extended boil times is that I had plenty of time to clean everything, even the pump head, which is usually the last thing to get clean, period, just because it gets taken apart into five pieces. But I had plenty of time to do it now. That's clean. Drying on a drying rack. Tubes are clean or hoses, whatever you want to call them. All the buckets are clean. Mulp pipe is crystal clean. Well, I guess it's shiny clean. It's stainless steel. Only thing I'm gonna have to clean when all said and done is the boil kettle itself, the actual anvil foundry. But that you gotta do that whether it's a 10 minute boil or a 10 hour boil. So it's gonna have to get done anyway. Um, that's it. Just gonna hang out. And uh, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do with myself for the next 40 minutes, but it, it's not cleaning. I know that much. Finally at the 10 minute left in the boil mark and I've already put these nutrients in. I put in, let's see, eight ounces of the 12 ounces of sugar. So here's the last four ounces finally going in. Not sure what made that on the mic, but it's all in now and I'm stirring it up with this 
I put the, uh, I do have the immersion chiller in and I have my mixing spoon and man, I think it, it's metal. It gets hot so quick, but it's not so bad now. It finally cooled off a little bit, stirring it the uh, other two additions of the sugar. So now in about five-ish minutes, so I'm gonna drop the Warflock tablet. Then I'm gonna drop this to around 90 degrees. I usually over, or I guess I overshoot. I get it a little lower when I try to rapid drop it to 190. And then I'm gonna put in the Centennial, the Cryo Centennial hops and Whirlpool that for a half hour. So um, it's the Whirlpool's probably gonna range from 185 to 91, 92 once it catches up. Cause I, like I said, I do, overshoot it accidentally i'll try knowing that it's going to drop from 212 to 190 really quick but eh, i i i think i always try and i always overshoot it but as long as i don't get too low like 150 it's all good so that is what is uh, those are the steps that are left except for yes a cascade when everything's all said and everything's all said and done which i will probably talk about that when i get to that point as well It is the end of the boil, so right now I am putting the anvil, or setting it, for 190 degrees. I'm going to drop the power to 90... No, I'm not going to drop the power, because what I'm going to do now is start the pump for the chiller. I'm going to run that for about 15 seconds, and then let's see where this temperature drops. I don't want to do it too long, because... Like I said, I can overshoot it, or I guess, I don't know if you call it undershoot it, overshoot it by too low. I, I could get below 190 really quick without trying. In fact, I think that was more than 15 seconds. So now I'm going to stir it. This is all, I'm documenting this all for myself for the future. It's already down to 202, but just that little time is running. And now that I'm stirring it here, it is, it's holding at 200. So let me... Well, 199. Let me give it like 10 more seconds-ish. That was a little less than 10. So let's see. I heard the fan finally turn off on the anvil, so that definitely means the heating elements are turned off. Okay, we're at 198, 197. I think it's going to free fall now without necessarily yeah 196 without necessarily the aid of the chiller so i'm gonna stir it by hand for just a little longer and then put in the whirlpool hops i did it i actually did it i got it to get to 190 and hold it's at 189 now so the burnt the the elements the heating elements turning back on but i for the, I think the first time using the immersion chiller in the anvil foundry, I didn't overshoot my target. I didn't go under 190 until it naturally got there from stirring, which is that noise you're hearing now. I am manually whirlpooling. I'm not going to do this for a full 30 minutes, but I'm going to do it like a minute at a time, take a little break, come back, do it for a minute. The It's a steep slash whirlpool, so it's it's even when I'm not stirring, it's doing what it should do. But I just wanted to note that <laughs> the amount of time I ran that pump on recording, which I should go back and actually timestamp those in my editor so I can tell exactly how long to run the pump to drop to 190. So I do it in the future. I'm very, very excited about doing that for the first time. So I got a while yet before I go on to the next thing, but you will hear it right after this. 
Well, on one of my stirring breaks, I figured I should probably f decide where I want to ferment this beer at. I, I know it's a lager strain. My original idea was to follow my usual lager schedule. It starts at 51, then free rises a bit and stays at that. I'll rest for a week or so, and then it drops again. And I'll probably still do the same steps, but I think I'm going to change the temp starting temperature. It's The range for this yeast is 50 to 65 so I'm going to go somewhere almost in the middle. I guess I could technically go in the middle because the temperature control does do decimals. But I'm going to start at 57. I, I, that's the middle range. And I also don't mind starting this particular lager strain a little higher. If it does produce some kind of esters, which I'm not expecting it to do at 57, I think that'll be fine with the hop profile that's on here. And since... This gravity, I know, I don't even, I haven't measured it yet, but I, I, now I think I know, I could be surprised, that it's higher than I expected. I don't want to start too cold. I want the yeast to start strong. So 57's a stronger range. If it doesn't take off the way I hope, I might bump it up to the low 60s within the first couple of days as well. But I'm going to start it at 57 and then do my usual lager steps, but just adjust them for the higher temperature start range. So that's the plan. And I think I rested my arm enough to go back to stirring. All right, that is it for the Whirlpool. So I've turned off the power to the coils, the heating elements. Uh, should kick off any second now, fan still going, going. And I put in the hops at flame out, and now I'm going to turn on the water because I realized I used up some water when I dropped the temperature earlier. Oh, fan is off. Okay, we should be cooling. And now I'm starting to pump. And now I'm just going to stir until I get to about 57 degrees. Uh, what I do, probably mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. It's always someone's first time listening to these things. I stir with tap water until I get to 100. I'm in Orlando, Florida, if that hasn't been pointed out lately. And our groundwater, our tap water is, I don't know what it is. It's, it's probably like 80 degrees. That might even be a um, understatement. It may be a little warmer than that. So this can only, the chiller can really only get within 25 degrees of its source water, but I can get it to 100. And then after that, I put in ice and I just keep pumping ice water. And once it starts feeling cold to the touch coming out of the other end of this uh, immersion chiller of these coils, I feed the hose back into the bucket so that cold water is feeding cold water. We kind of stay at a good cool level of the source water for this immersion chiller and then it chills pretty quick. This will be done, even though this is a twice the size I usually do in these recordings, it's still going to be done around... 20 minutes probably less because we're starting 20 degrees cooler than we normally do in fact right now the time that i talked it's at 159 and started 190 so what is that 41 degrees about feels that feels wrong 31 i'm sorry it's 31 degrees so it's it's going it uh, i think it's still gonna i stand by my 20 minutes <laughs> i'm not gonna time it but around 20 minutes i know i keep changing that within under around Somewhere around that mark, it'll be done. And then I'll transfer it into the fermenters. And I got the yeast ready. I got, I put in both. Once they were done, I put them into both, uh, put them in the same Erlenmeyer flask. I've decanted it and I got a lot, a really, really like 
completely translucent, almost white yeast slurry to pour into these. So I think I got enough yeast, regardless of how high this gravity is going to come out, which is something we will also check when all is said and done here. Since I managed to pique my own curiosity in that last recording, I actually took a temperature reading of the water coming out of the faucet and it is 85.3 degrees. I wasn't expecting it to be that high, so just, <laughs> it's not far from body temperature, which is, that sounds about right for Florida. So I, I don't know why I still live here sometimes. So yeah, 100 was probably pushing it tonight. That's 15 degrees, that's okay. It looks like it's going to get there. I'm at 110 now. It's been, I don't know what it's been. It's been the better part of 10 minutes. Not quite 10, like 7 or 8. And I just dropped to 109, 108 now. So I think I'll get it to 100. So I thought it was within 25 degrees these were, these particular coils were designed for. And maybe that's what they say as a underestimate. But I, I'm going to get to 100 here very shortly. And then I'll put the ice in. And then I'll be done just not very long after that. I am done with brewing. Everything's in the fermenter. The yeast is pitched. It's now the yeast job to take over. And in about a week or so, I'll dry hop and then, well, we'll see where this goes. Never done a cold IPA, never used this yeast, and didn't expect the high number I got on the starting gravity or the pre-boil gravity, which reminds me to get the starting gravity number. So I'm going to do that now. I'm going to get some things soaking that can soak for cleaning and now I'm gonna get that starting gravity number but you're going to hear it right after this all right I got my starting gravity number it's not as high as I feared it's 1.070 so that's five points over the target recipe which is 1065 that's gonna be if it all ferments out completely to its potential at most it's gonna be about a 7.8 percent beer i'm guessing this may stall a little bit because of the higher sugar content now and still get us around seven that was the goal in the first place so i'm pretty confident now in this beer and hopefully the yeast works like i expect but i got some more on standby so i think we're good so that's uh all good news pretty fun and I'm trying to think of more to say to put off cleaning but i can't so I'm gonna go have to uh, have to. I gotta. I'm gonna. Whoa! I see. I'm even. Even my brain and tongue are working in tandem to keep me from cleaning. Some somewhere along there, I was trying to say I, I can't avoid the inevitable, and I gotta start cleaning. So, I'm gonna do that now. It's the next day, and I did forget one thing during the brew day yesterday. But I remembered right before I went to bed. Literally before I went to bed. I don't know why I remembered it. But I did, and I'm glad I did, and it wasn't too late to do this, and that was to add the ALDC, which is, I talked about it in the Belgian Pale episode. This is the, the diacetyl-reducing enzyme, and it, it's used in, you can use it in any beer to help prevent those diacetyl off flavors being produced by the yeast, but its main, I think reason it's gotten so popular, and it actually says it here on the bottle, altogether it says ALDC can be used during fermentation or added along with dry hops to reduce the production of diacetyl, commonly used to avoid hop creep. And this is going to be heavily dry hopped. And what hop creep is, is the potential for the addition of dry hops to kick off a very aggressive fermentation 
in the range that creates diacetyl. So this is been, I think the popularity of this is because of the popularity of hoppy beers to help keep that from happening. So I did add some fermentation to kind of keep the wort as it is, well now turning into beer, which that is because I did check the fermentation, we have a little bit of grousing going, keep the diacetyl from ranging there. I'm gonna add this with my dry hops as well to keep that hop creep from happening, hopefully. So very important step, I almost forgot. But like I said, it was early enough to remember it and add it, and I'll be adding it at the dry hop too. I don't think I'll forget at the dry hop at this point, having gone through this. I'm actually driving back from the store after getting water for an upcoming brew and episode that I'm also recording for, and I realized I didn't record what I did to the cold IPA yesterday, so I thought I'd take a second to mention that for anyone that's following along and is actually writing down notes of what this recipe is in case it happens to come out okay. I dry hopped it pretty straightforward, and the most important thing of that is what did I dry hop it with? Well, I dry hopped it with an ounce and a half of, wow, I had this, I ran through this in my head before I recorded to see if I remembered it, now it's, okay, I got it, ounce and a half of mosaic, ounce and a half of strata, which I've never used before, but I have a guy in my club who's a really good brewer, he's actually a really accomplished brewer, who swears by strata, particularly in dry hopping anything IPA, cold, regular, um, hazy. So I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And he says it works well with mosaic and just about any of the sea hops, which is good because I did put in, this is going to be a weird number. I put in 0.625. I think, well, I think I did 0.62 at the, at that, at when all said and done of Cryocentennial. That number is a little weird because I planned for an ounce and a half of Centennial. And when I went to get my Centennial out of storage, out of the freezer, I saw I had only had cryo. So that's a much higher alpha acid. So I saw what the IBU was with the regular Centennial that I planned for in the recipe, adjusted it for what the cryo is, and to match that number was 0.625 ounces so that's that weird number is otherwise if i'd gotten regular centennial i would have done an ounce and a half of that as well so that is what i dry hopped i put it in i put a little more l uh, aldc i think that's the name i don't have the bottle in front of me to help prevent hop creep and not fire up any kind of fermentation and weird flavors and i'm actually going to start cold crashing tomorrow so it's going to sit there and kind of cold dry hop in a sense over the next three or four days as i drop the temperature to uh, cold crashing levels and then keg right after that's all done. I just got a delivery and I've opened it, but I haven't looked at the contents yet. And that's because I thought I should probably record this because this beer, like I've been saying throughout this entire process, I'm making for Halloween Horror Nights to share with people, my friends in the community, other podcasts. And I wanted to make, I wanted to make sure the cans were labeled instead of just giving them the plain silver cans and i in the past i've been printing out labels kind of on demand and they've been they've been not bad at all the the, the printer i had was doing a pretty good job but i've now think i pushed it past its limits and it's not it's not a young printer it's fairly old and it wasn't a high-end printer so i'm not too upset about it because i got think more out of it than it was intended to be. And now the print heads are just shot. I, I cannot get a full color image 
of really any size without those streaks in it. Do you, if you ever had an inkjet printer, you know what I'm talking about. I've cleaned it a thousand times. I've tried a manual cleaning best I can. A little hard to get to without disassembling the printer. So I have always ordered my labels from online labels. They're actually in Sanford, Florida. I didn't realize that till about halfway through using them over the past few years, which is about 45 minutes away from here. So I get them the next day. They've started in the past couple years doing printing services, so I decided to give them a shot at printing these beer labels and see, I, I, I ordered nine. There's, I can fit three on a full-size sheet, so it's kind of a test run, and if they look good, I'm going to order the rest from them, but I am, <laughs> I've opened it. I'm a little hesitant because if they don't look good, I don't know that I'll save this recording, so I'm now taking the plastic sleeve out of the envelope. I have the packing list in front of me. You probably hear me crinkling the paper. All right, I'm looking at the labels. Oh, geez, there's a, <laughs> there's like a sheet on top of it protecting them. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Um, not only are these better than expect well, well oh shoot i just blew the lead there but not only are these acceptable oh my god these are far better than expected these look pro there's a little bit it's if i really study it the the sheen on them is a little i think more than most beer cans but i don't care oh my god the colors on this are so vibrant you can read every single word on here these are beautiful i'm freaking ecstatic and I will have to make sure the when I get these on the can that that's in the image of this of this episode. These are these are phenomenal, and I freaking now regret <laughs> not ordering them all at once because there is a printing fee, and then then there's a shipping fee. But I'd rather I guess I'd rather invest. Oh, I got four sheets. I didn't realize I did that. Let me see if I ordered. No, I ordered three. They gave me four. Okay, well. That's another nice surprise. It says it clearly says three on here. And I got four. So I got four of these. So that's a dozen. That might be all I need to hand out. But um, regardless of that, I am going to be using them a lot when I have a lot to do. If I'm only going to do two cans for like a photo or send a, just to two friends or whatnot, I'll probably print them. I'm, I'm planning to get another printer anyway, just not just for labels, but for just in general. Um, but man, these are, these are gorgeous. If they were, I don't know what I was going to say. If they were a little cheaper for the setup, I might do them just for all my cans, have some fun. But uh, the, the, the price is definitely right for bulk. I'm going to definitely, and the, the decision's made, man. This isn't even a debate. Wow, these are great. These are just, if I ever have more than 10 to do or more than, shoot, five to do, because that'd be two sheets. I'm gonna use them. These are perfect. These are absolutely perfect. I'm glad I recorded this because, oh man, I was I was hesitant because I have used online printers before, and I've gotten some terrible results. But online labels is like a, a reputable company. They've been around for a while. I've used them. I trusted them that this would be good. And man, alive are they? They're better than good. They're fantastic. All right. Okay, <laughs> now I just need to get the beer in the cans so I can show off these labels on the cans. So, yeah, all right, that is, uh, that's where I'm out on here. So, awesome, awesome freaking delivery.
The Odd Fellow Cold IPA is in its final form, kind of. No, it's not. Crap. <laughs> I just realized there's something else to it. But for all intents and purposes, it is, it's canned. It's never, not going to be moved anywhere else except into a glass and then consumed. So it's completely done. We have gone from raw ingredients to fermenter, from fermenter to keg, from keg now to can. In fact, with carbonation in between there and an extra two weeks of letting it clear to get it to look like it should, as a cold IPA should, nice and clear, bordering on crystal clear, and now in cans. And that's just about its final form. I do have the labels, which I believe was probably the last recording I made before this to put on. Then it's in its final form. I guess if you want to say I'm going to put them on four or six packs and that's another final form but final form that's it <laughs> i'm not going to record labeling or putting can holders on these so done ready to go i will say i've had some of this as i was canning mainly because two cans did slip and a little bit spilled out and going back to top off cans just introduces oxygen and would have ruined those two cans of beer so the most logical thing to do was to drink the beer that remains, so probably about 11 ounces in one, 10 in another. So basically I had two cans of beer while doing this and enjoyed every bit of it and can't wait to really sit down and talk about this beer in a true tasting. So that is it. I just am, now I have them all on the counter. I just rinsed every single can in sanitizer, kind of letting them drip dry. And once, uh, I don't know, maybe probably in about 30 minutes or so, once I clean up, couple things however long that takes i'll move these into the fridge and then i will probably label the ones i have labels for tomorrow and now i need to order the rest of the labels which i can do because now i know how many cans i have so that's it done this has been a long journey a fun journey and based on what i experienced tonight really looking forward to talking more about this beer very soon if not next It is finally time. It's time for the tasting of this beer, the Odd Fellows Odd IPA, the Thylized Cold IPA. And I say finally for I can't, I, two reasons, I guess. I was going to say one. One, because this is probably the longest amount of time I put in a beer recently. And that comes down to the fact that I wanted to get it as clear as possible. It was clearing off the bat uh, right after kegging, but it just was not getting to the point of clarity that I wanted until about almost exactly two weeks later than I planned. So it was an extra amount of time along with doing a proper lagering aging or lagering on it. Not, not an aging, but a lagering the longer than normal fermentation process. So for me, it's been a long time to get to this point. And I really did a lot of in-depth recordings on this one because I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that usually don't listen to this series. So for you as well, it's finally here for the tasting time. And let's just start off by looking at this. I am glad I waited that extra time to get the clarity on this. The only thing that's affecting the clarity of it right now is that this thing is ice cold. It's so cold in that fridge right now because the temperature's down. The beer fridge is in my garage. So it's able to keep up. So the the um, condensation keeps affecting the clarity. But when I wipe it away like I just did, it is clear. It is almost crystal clear. I bet you if I let this sit another ooh, three to four weeks, we could probably get the crystal clear, but it's very clear. I'm very happy with the clarity. The color, I'm really happy about. I'm surprised. 
it's light yellow. Um, and it's not quite straw. Straw is what I was expecting, considering the grain bill is so light on this. I'm surprised it's as dark as it is for those grains, especially with that amount of rice. But I still really like the color. Light yellow, definitely not quite gold. It's in that range of a kind of the American lager look that I was going for with this. Now on to aroma. Just huge, huge hops of from from every angle. The natural nature of the hop, that that kind of resiny, very pungent citrus, almost floral, and even a little bit of when I say vegetal, I don't mean like a like a a um salad or a side dish vegetable. I mean just like that vegetal nature of it being a plant. It's a vine plant. It, there's that note of that in here in the aroma, but after that, there's just so much fruit and it's like, it's, it's a, I don't want to say, I guess maybe I want to say sharp, but not, not in a bad way, just a very distinct zest character, very strong, like that, that kind of bordering on tart, but not quite sour orange, a little bit of grapefruit, definitely some, some passion fruit and even a little bit underneath all of that. Just a very, very hint of the Pilsner malt, sweet nature of that malt, that aroma coming through underneath all that and actually supporting all those other characters. It's a very aromatic beer, which is the point of the thialized yeast. And I think that's what's really driving that zest in that fruit and passion fruit notes to the forefront on this. The carbonation on this is came out really well, too. It held really well. I kind of pushed the carbonation on the quick carb so that when I packaged it from a keg to a can, it held and the head, the head on pour was ridiculous. It was huge. It didn't hold. Well, it, it, I was gonna say not terribly long, but it held longer than I thought. I, I, I put this glass of beer through so many rounds of pictures. Even at that, there is a distinct head on this. It's small. It's maybe like an eighth of an inch on the collar and then a complete covering on top of the beer, but it's still there. And this thing has been past, all over this house trying to get a good picture, which I still don't think I got a picture it that gives us justice. I got to take some, I don't know what, some kind of time to really dial in my photography on this because of all the beers, this one really needed to be showcased better than I was able to do, but I did my best. Now let's go to taste. That's always the big factor in these beers. Okay, this is <laughs> so much to talk about here in such a good way first i'll say right off the bat it is a lot more bitter than people might be expecting from the description of styles like a an ipa meets a american lager it's got a very assertive bitterness not bad by any means and not overwhelming but it's probably a lot more bitter especially in the finish and the aftertaste and might let on by description however that is not the only thing going on there is this incredibly fun, and it's still it's lingering on the back of my palate. It's this almost candied fruit flavor, almost like a, a hard candy fruit, but not that cloyingly sweet. Just a little hint of it. And in between all that is so much going on that I have to take another taste before I can completely describe it. So, okay, right on the tongue, right off the bat. Like really fresh, ripe fruit, passion fruit, a little bit of that sour tart of a passion fruit, but not too overwhelming. 
hit with some citrus zest. And then also on top of that, it's like some fresh squeezed, really sweet. I, uh, it wouldn't be not, a, not, not like a Valencia orange, maybe like a mandarin orange, like one of those sweeties. I think those are mandarin oranges. Maybe I'm not wrong, but a small orange that are a little sweeter than a normal orange. I think those are mandarin. I'm thinking mandarin oranges. And I got in my picture in my head, like those little sweeties, you get like a dozen in a mesh bag. If, um, I think that's what they're called. And I think those are mandarin oranges. Not, that's what I'm talking about. Smaller orange, smaller than a normal orange. Not, again, none of these characteristics I'm explaining is like the sole thing. It's all that mixed together just really, really well. And then on top of that, and take, to take another sip, there's just a hint of that distinctively lager flavor, that almost dry. There's a Christmas to it. There's a, oh, a a little bit of sulfur without it being like gross or or even distracting, just that little bit of character, just lying underneath all that, supporting those flavors. And I, I got to think that most of the character that's growing out of this is because of the yeast. It's not solely the yeast, but that thialized yeast that from Omega. That's got to be driving most of this. It's 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 a lager yeast, so it's giving that lager character described, and it's probably what's responsible for pulling out the thiols. Now, what's funny is that I learned a lot more about the whole process of, of these yeast and what they do to extract those thiols since my initial recording of the intro. And, and long story short, because this could go on for an hour, there's precursors for those thiols, for those fruit flavors and aromas, that are in hops and malts, and particularly I think in the husk is what they narrowed it down to, that are, they're a combination of a compound where they have thiols and another thing. I, I didn't, didn't write down what the second thing is. And typically they stay together and the thiols don't get to express themselves. Once they make it into the wort that you boil and you, you, you're done, you're brewing, you add the yeast, the yeast go in and actually break those molecules or those compounds apart in their individual pieces. And the thiols are able to free and express themselves, whereas they just kind of, they wouldn't, they'd be part of that other compound. I thought that was really interesting. And I might go into more on that on another episode, but this isn't the episode for that. So that's how that works. I'd never knew that. And it was just dumb luck that I learned that particular fact between th- th- this whole process of this beer, but this beer is so freaking good. Um, I guess the question is the, the goal was to make a, a beer that uh, obviously it's drinkable and one that I'm happy to share. Now, would this be one for an event in, in, the, in the Halloween hard nights? He, let me take another taste. I think the one thing that keeps us from being a repeat pounder at Halloween hard nights is even though, it has that crisp, that crisp. I don't know what word I said there. Crisp finish uh, and and flavor of a lager. It's also medium bodied, which I found really interesting. I'm not quite sure what's doing that because I know that the malt bill for this is not by nature producing a medium body feel or shouldn't. So it might be something to do with what this yeast does with that ridiculous amount of hops that are in this that might be giving a perception of a medium body feel feel so at 100 degrees in 300 degrees humidity the first very cold one might be refreshing it might not be your second go-to you might want to water in between or you might want something a little uh less um uh, heavy is not the right word because it's not heavy but something lighter than this maybe it's hard to tell but i think it's definitely in the world of being able to enjoy in that atmosphere, it definitely fits the, I love I, 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 just the, the whole 
premise of using a genetically modified yeast just fits so well with what we've now seen at Halloween Horror Nights because I started this project before seeing what they did and there's a lot of that a lot of that in the scare zones I'm not I don't think there's oh there is and I was gonna say that I don't think there's so much of that in the in the house but that's not true because I actually developed a rather stiff kink in my neck by getting the crap scared out of me by a minotaur in the house so yes genetically modified organisms of sorts be them as small as a yeast or as large as a minotaur or minotaur uh, definitely fits the bill so this is i think after taking a long break oh wow i just <laughs> sorry i was just swirling as i'm talking and i just took a um a sample of the aroma <sighs> that smells so good oh there's almost like a juicy fruit gum Aro wow aroma now that it's starting to warm up a little bit oh man that's crazy that's really cool. Anyway, um, yeah, I think I hit the bill on the the concept. I think I think I hit the mark on concept. I should say, uh, I'd like it a little lighter to make it a crushable thing at, at um in the heat that we've been experiencing. Though it's starting to get nicer. Hopefully, it holds out to Halloween. And um, man, there's nothing else I'd really change about this. There's one. There's one been one disappointing thing in this, and it's it has nothing to do with the beer itself. And it's the amount that I got. Uh, without getting into too much detail, I really wanted to properly lager this beer and, and ferment it at lager temperatures. And at the time, at the heat that we have, I have a couple external units that I can do that with in much more climate temperatures, not when it's 90 and 100. The humidity is really what makes a factor because the house will stay at 75, but the humidity actually has a really huge effect on these devices. Not quite sure the science behind that, but it's it's that's that's been a problem. I do have a refrigerator, like a half-size refrigerator. I can't fit in a full a six to seven-gallon fermenter, which is what you'd want for five full gallons, but I can fit in two three-gallon ones. So I split this batch between two three-gallon fermenters. Now, doing that, I had twice the amount of loss when I pulled that beer out of the fermenters and into the keg. So I lost right then, right there, right off the top of the bat, I lost about 10 cans of beer. I was going for... Normally, out of a five-gallon beer, I'd probably get about 50 cans. Now, the amount of hops in this probably knocked two of those out, plus another 10 of loss. That's, that's, what's, we, that's 12. That's down to 38 cans. I had two cans that they didn't miss seam, but they slipped out of the can seamer and spilled. And it's an IPA. And again, without going into a big science lecture, if I were to refill this and introduce additional air into the beer it would spoil much quicker than filling it in one shot and sealing it. So instead of ruining those two cans of beer, I drank those two cans of beer. So they weren't lost. So there's two that's gone as well. And so that gets us down to, what was that? I, I lost the math. There. I think we're down to 36. And I was just, after that, I was short three. Probably from sampling all the times I was to see how clear this beer was, maybe I pulled out another can or two of that and just, just the loss you get in your tubing and whatnot. So... Long story short, which is too late, of course, I have 33 cans. I was hoping for 40 because of the way I split this batch. We only have 33. Not that 33 is a bad amount, but I was hoping to be able to hand out more. I think I can give one or two, depending on what people's... If they don't like IPAs, I'll just give them one so they have the can with the label and whatnot. If they like them, I'll give them two. I think I'll be able to definitely, definitely give this to all the people I'm planning to. I just can't give them as much as I was hoping. And that's unfortunate. That's the only disappointing part. 
And even more disappointing, there's not as much left over for me, which is selfish, but I don't care. <laughs> but I can make this again, and I may make a version of this. Maybe try to crisp this up a little bit. Maybe use um, rice solids instead of flaked rice. That might be the trick to get that body down, that crispness up a little more. But that is that one change I just said there is all I would change. I would not change the yeast. I would not change the hops. I wouldn't change the base malt. Maybe the adjunct. Maybe. And even then... It's so freaking good. It might not be worth messing with. Maybe leave it as it is if I make this again. But I am super excited about this beer. I can't wait for other people to try it. It's going to be released at a Halloween party a week from today. In fact, actually a week from the today that I'm recording. Yes. Okay. I just had to do the math. The, the day this is released is the day other people are finally going to try this beer. And I'm super excited about it. I'm always, always happy to share my beer. But there's always an apprehension in the back of my head that something's not, someone's going to pick something up that I'm not. This one, I know it's not for, it's so different. It's not for everybody's taste, but I don't think anyone's going to put this down saying this is not a unique and interesting beer, which is really what I'm excited to talk about. Oh man, it smells so good. And I'm going to taste it one more time before I wrap up here. Oh, it's so good. I just, that is. I am super excited about this. Uh, I, I can't can't wait to share this beer. And kind of looking forward to see what next year's Halloween Horror Nights brings so I can kind of do this again. Now, I think, was there a tradition? I don't know if it's a tradition. More than once, I made a beer. When I used to do this every year, I made a beer for that year specific, and then I made another one based on the past. So this might show up next year as a beer based on the past while I make a new one. For Halloween Horror Nights 33 when that comes along. But for now, Halloween Horror Nights 32, this beer is exceeded my expectations. It's delivered on all my hopes, and I am super psyched about this and can't wait to share this. So that is it, man. I, I could talk more about th this beer. I could talk more about the process. I could talk more about what I learned about these sliced yeast for like literally hours, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to say, of course, thank you for listening to this episode. I think it's haven't even begun to edit it yet, but I'm sure it's probably the longest ones I put out this year because of all the detail I want to put into this. But thank you for hanging in there to the, to the end of this. And I'll be back with more. I got, what, two, three more behind this. Now that competition season, my brewing for competition season is over, I'm able to get down back to doing these recordings and editing these episodes and brewing some fun beers and that's what's coming up behind this so that is it again let me say thank you for listening and i'll see you in the next episode <laughs>